my name is Appa Similani. Uh, welcome to uh, the last and uh, uh, certainly not the least of uh, this quarter's program. Uh, next uh, quarter we have a, a fairly uh, ambitious set of new programs that we are going to be announcing. If you are not on our list, please add your name. Uh, you will be informed about them. We have uh, plays, we have uh, uh, workshops and uh, seminars and uh, films that we are planning to launch next uh, quarter. Uh, tonight's uh, uh, speaker, uh, Dr. Zakari, uh, is going to talk about a very interesting, fascinating topic and the way this came about uh, last year we had a speaker here to Rajat Aryoi and I asked him, I said, uh, who would be the best person that we could invite to shed light on the early history of Islam in Iran? A very controversial topic, something that we all want to know about uh, and something that has been uh, written a little bit in Persian but not much in English. And he said, uh, the person you want to talk to, the person you want to invite is uh, Dr. Zakiri, uh, who has written extensively about this. His uh, dissertation was uh, on this. It was uh, uh, published in the form of a book. His subsequent book has uh, been chosen as the book of the year. He is now a research fellow at the Göttingen University. He got his PhD uh, from the University of Utah. He was a student of a very dear friend of mine, Professor Ali Sham, and those of you who know Iranian studies know what a remarkable man he was and what a great loss his absence is. So uh, we are very, very uh, honored that he accepted our invitation. Uh, he's going to be talking about a flawed chapter in modern Iranian historiography, the first century of Iran and Islam. Professor Zakir. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I am so happy to be here tonight, and I feel honored to be here. And for that, I would like to thank Mr. Milani, University of Stanford, their sponsors, and whatever. And it is a pleasure and honor for me to be here tonight. I'm really enjoying every minute of it. And I hope to be able or try to transfer a little bit of my joy with you too. Well, I didn't know exactly where I was coming, what kind of publicum will be sitting here. I tried to orient myself for a more academic scholar, a more public. So something, an uh, amalgamation of different ways. So I do a little bit of reading and then maybe I start talking. Let's see how it goes. Have nothing definite. So what I'm going to, uh, to talk tonight is about the, the first two centuries of Iran and Islam, but how the modern scholarship has been projecting those two centuries of early Islam. There are certain things that have happened, and there are certain people who write about those things that allegedly are happened. So this is the point. What I would do is just give you a review as, as brief as I can 
about who has been involved in this discussion and then maybe at the end then I give you some examples of what kind of data we have and what we make out of that data. So a review of the literature briefly and a few examples at the very end. So this is the general topic. So at the very end, I mean, if somebody has a question about why this picture, this is what we are talking about. What happened here, who was living there, and what kind of fate uh, befall the people who are responsible for that. Could you please explain in the beginning, because everybody is curious about what is, this what is the location of this place? Uh, this is maybe... The name there, Tava Kasra, Iraq, the Ark of the Great Palace of Tezilfan. This is the White House of the Sasanian Kings. This is uh, in Iraq today, I would say something like 30 kilometers south of Baghdad. And this is as the Tezilfan fell to the Muslims, eventually they came back to this neighborhood and tried to reproduce. Baghdad is a reflection of Tezyophone. So the distance, and we have a lot of reports how every stone of this city, every door, every window, everything of value that could be used was constantly over years, for 200 years, was transported to Baghdad. They were rebuilding this city in what, what we have today in Baghdad. And the legends, if somebody at some point, it would be a good topic for a dissertation, what happened to the city of Tezyophon in, that would be a very interesting thing by itself, okay? So. Is this still standing as it has uh, this is, I think this is the newest picture that I have from it, and I haven't had the chance to be there yet, whether this, this is the newest, I think, so I go, I, I assume that this is what we have. I, I knew during the Iran-Iraq war there was some damage done there, I have heard, but I don't know uh, what exactly, I think this is what we have today. So, but then I would cut then my discussion a little bit shorter so that uh, we get into a question and answer that would be more uh, um, profitable to everybody. Modern writing of Iranian history has been frequently marred by the ideological motivation of the authors who have written it. This is nowhere more dramatically visible than in the works that deal with the two first centuries of Iran and Islam. Authors motivated by a nationalistic sentiment speak of two centuries of total devastation and of the Iranian culture and heritage. Those inspired by the Islamic uh, Fate, they call it two centuries of gold, these two centuries as golden age of Islamic period 
as well as an Iranian uh, flourishing of culture. It is more interesting when we see that these two opposing nationalistic devastation and ruin, rebuilding and flourishing of the culture. We see sometimes in the work of a single author first writing about this aspect, a nationalistic view, and second, write uh, con completely opposite way of doing it. And one of the best examples that I would be talking about is Dokan Sukut by Zarin Kup that I would get back to him. During the first two centuries of Iran and Islam, no history of Iranian uh, events has been written. The last two centuries of modern scholarship of, the, of this history, we are not in any better shape. I would call the, our knowledge of the first two centuries the age of um, Jahiliyyah. Jahiliyyah is used usually for the pre-Islamic period of time, but our knowledge of the first two centuries of Iran is the age of ignorance, the age of Jahiliyyah. This is uh, my view of the thing. During the first two centuries after Hijra, uh, I said it, This being the case, somebody like, I mean, not having enough uh, this material about this, somebody like uh, um, Mr. Waziri comes and writes, dares to write Iran and imagination, the construction of national identity in which it questions the entire idea of the existence of Iran as a product of the 20th century Orientalism, hence false and unreal. He attacks the modern Iranian historians as infected with the virus of Orientalism and maintains that the Iranian national identity was a product of the racist nationalist paradigm of the Orientalism. Somebody who comes with this kind of idea rejects the whole existence of Iran. Why is that? Because we are living in two centuries of ignorance. The nature of the early history of Iran and Islam has been a subject of controversy at least since John Malcolm published his history of History of Iran in Bombay in 1803. Malcolm was an um, British ambassador in India and he was sent to Iran to sign commercial treaties and he is the first writer in modern time writing the history of Iran and 
and uh, Malcolm was um, okay. I think this is um, the first person here um, visiting Fatali Shah in Iran and after returning back to India or, or a year before that I think has written his um, history of Iran. Dealing with these two centuries that we are talking about, this is what the first history of Iran tells us about. After the fight of uh, after the flight of Yazdegerd, the leaders of the caliph's armies soon overran the whole of Persia, from the Euphrates to the Oxus, destroying with bigot furry all that was useful, grand, or sacred. Having said this, Malcolm found himself justified to jump over two centuries right to the house of the Safarids in the middle of ninth century and continue his narrative from there. This two-line impression is all that the first comprehensive modern history of Iran has to tell us about two centuries of, the, uh, of Iranian history. Some 100 years later, we have, in the turn of the 19th century, we have Edward Brown, which tells us this. In the two centuries, in the two histories of Persia with which Englishmen are most familiar, those of Sir John Malcolm, of history of Persia, and Clemens Markham, general sketch of history of Persia, the transition period intervening between the Arab conquest in the 7th century of our era and the formation of the first independent or semi-independent post-Muhammadan Persian dynasties in the 9th is rather cursorily and inadequately treated, as though it were a mere interruption of the national life instead of being, as in, in many ways it really was, actually was, the most interesting and intellectually the most fruitful of all the periods into which Persian history can be divided. This is the second view that we get from uh, the Western so. A critical evaluation of modern historiography, um, because there are other uh, such examples, such diverse uh, viewpoints, which I'm not going to go into very much. A critical evaluation of modern historiographical tradition in Iran that considers the impact of Western scholarship on that tradition is long overdue. A recent and lucidly written study of this is Ali Ansari's The, Pol and the Politics of, Modern, um, of Nationalization, Nationalism in Modern Iran, 2012, Cambridge. Ansari's survey is very informative and a pleasure to read. Here I, I will uh, try to introduce a few voices uh, Iranian voices in this field and to see what they have had to say. Oops.
So this, uh, I would say a few words about um, Zarin Koop, Mohammed Moin. It's only it, it's a casual choice. I had the books in front of me at home, so there was no particular choice. and. Um, and who else do we have? Qulam Hussain Yusuf, Qulam Hussain Sadiqi, Ali Shariati also uh, I mentioned, and Muhammad Muhammadi. One of the most popular and controversial uh, contribution to the field is the work of uh, Abul Hassan Zarin Koop called Dogan Sukut. Two centuries of silence. This is uh, Zarin Koop in uh, to the left, to your left side. Uh, after publishing, this was his dissertation. Two uh, two centuries of silence. After publishing this book, he came under heavy attack. In and uh, uh, um, what was the date exactly? The first uh, edition of the book is, was in 1951. Five years later, five and a half years later, he published a second version of the book because there was a lot of attack. And this is um, what I want to say, what, how he was treating. For him, a set of ideas um, uh, that were important in the first edition and how he changed them in the second edition but he kept he kept the same title for for both editions a lot of times the people who have been using this book have the second editions and not the first one the first one is out of market almost the, he says in the first and then i say how he changes the arabs ruined iranian villages and towns in the second he says no they did not do that the Arabs forbade the Iranian language and its dialects because it it posed a threat in the language to the language of Quran. No, of course they did, they did, they did not do that in the second. The Arabs burned burned Iranian libraries and destroyed all the scientific and literary heritage of the ancient Iranians. In the second, no, they did not do that. They forcefully confiscated the wealth and property of the conquered people wherever they could and in whichever way they could. In the second, they did not do that. To set an example to, uh, to the anti-Arab rebels, Abdullah ibn Amr killed 40,000 residents of the city of Fars. He says maybe they re he really did that. I would come back to this. They were barbarians and, and treated the fallen survivors with barbarism. Their inhuman behavior was <coughs> inhumane behavior was palliated only after learning Iranian manners. So the barbarians became cultured 
afterwards. And the list of these contrasts between two versions of the same book by the same author, we would like, I would personally would like to see what happened or what went through his mind in the, during this five years period that turning back and changing everything and writing a second version of the book which I cannot answer, but uh, one possible answer would be that at that time he was writing a dissertation and by, there was Pur Davud and a lot of other, a few other Iranian nationalists that he was writing a dissertation. He wanted to get the signature and get out. So he just followed that. I don't want to say that during these five years really something happened to him. But he was diplomatic and afterwards he said, okay, I'm free now, I can do whatever I want. And, and this is probably what happened. So this, um, let's see what he says. چه ضرورت دارد که من بیوده از آن این second version introduction this is what he says um, چه ضرورت دارد که من بیوده از آنچه سابق به خطا پنداشتم دفاع کنم و عوض لجاج و انادر ناروا آورزم what is the point in unnecessarily defending the so should I read it or I don't know uh, what is the point in unnecessarily defending the, the mistakes I have made in the past and engage in futile defiance of uh, what is wrong. I crossed out all that which was questionable, obscure, and wrong. Many of these doubtful statements were made, I do not know exactly why, perhaps because of my ignorance or fanaticism. While it had been difficult for me to appropriately acknowledge the faults and the responsibilities of the Iranians for the defeat before the Arabs. I cannot really be very professional with this. I was so engulfed with the, uh, with the spirit of nationalism that I simply attributed everything that was pure, right, and holy to Iran. So this is how he revised, uh, revised his ideas there. Nonetheless, for, um, he, he continued, um, Zarin Kuk continued to write different versions of the same book um, throughout his life. He produced at least 10 different history of early Iranian uh, Iran Islam. And from two centuries of silence, he jumped then afterwards in another book, Bamdad Islam, the rising of Islam, or the, the golden age of Islam, Karnami Islam, the wonderful. Although he did all these things, nonetheless, two centuries of silence, became his most popular book and went to diverse printings for reached, I think, not 30 uh, reprints. At the beginning of the Islamic period, Islamic Revolution, it was published, but immediately went uh, out of, um, they uh, was forced to withdraw. 
Many years later, it was republished, but with an introduction by no less than Ayatollah uh, Mutahari, in order this uh, to that was a warning shot. Uh, the introduction: Be careful with this book. Although this is, we are talking about the second version, not the first one. Although the, so many differences were introduced in the book, nonetheless, and it was a warning from uh, the side of the um, the Shi ulama. Um, and this is what uh, today we um, can buy and read. It is also to notice that he is writing about an event, a period that happened 1400 years earlier. But it is of such a great uh, political importance today that it has become politically dangerous even to talk about that, those matters. This is the atmosphere of um, how things are. The next uh, person who expressed himself on this particular subject was Muhammad Moin in Mazdayazna wa Adab Parsi. His approach was literary and uh, not properly historical, but he became also a uh, for some opinions that he has expressed in his uh, his book there, he was under attack and a lot of reviewers were saying that he is glorifying the pre-Islamic period of Iran and uh, of the uh, on the cost of the Islamic contribution. <coughs> he was, uh, uh, Moin was trained or um, in the same school of Zarin Kup. But then he, he picks up more the negative aspects of Zarin Kup's ideas and reproduce them further, but giving only as evidence, he picks up on Sergeant Malcolm. Sergeant Malcolm, we, we recall, had said only one line about two centuries of destruction and nothing else. And as, as, as an example, the only example that Moin gives for these atrocities of the Muslims, okay, we have enough of that, but the only one that he says is the burning of the cultural heritage of Khwarazm as reported by Biruni in his Asar al-Baghiyah, one of the books. Biruni is an author writing 300 years after the events that allegedly, allegedly he's reporting. But no sources, he doesn't give any sources for it. Who did this damage? Who did this burning? Why did, there is no trace. But this becomes uh, the, the sole, um, the sole uh, documentation of Muhammad al-Muin. Nonetheless, this book is uh, uh, very useful even today, after 50 years of his publication. It is uh, um, for people who, who are interested in this uh, kind of subject, it is a must-have book.
Another contribution came from Taghizadeh as Parviz Tachangiz and uh, Taghizadeh was coming from a religious background but he became sort of liberal pro-western he wanted to westernize um, westernize um, Iranian culture he put the blame of the downfall of the Sasanian Empire to the religious intolerance and this is why the Iranians received the Muslims open, uh, with open arms and so warmly. This is his point in this book. The I don't know how this thing functions. I wish I knew how to go. <laughs> I'm not used to this thing, that is why a little bit difficult for me. Um, then, uh, then we have Murtaza Mutahari. For those you, uh, you know, he wrote his Khadamat. This is not Khadamat, this is wrong. Khadamat uh, Mutaqabal uh, Iran by Islam. The um, mutual contribution between Iran and Islam. He's a Shi uh, alim. He's a Shi, a Shi a scholar who is going, uh, who is in uh, defending the Islamic side of the events. And but Murtaza Mutari is very learned. He's reviewing. He's not a historian. He's not going to the sources as much to analyze the sources. He's attacking the secondary literature. He criticizes heavily, for example, Zarin um, Koop. He criticizes Pur Davut. He criticizes Taghizadeh, uh, and so forth. Uh, this is his job, and he does it very powerfully because his, his subjects are so poor, in a sense. His, the, the, the arguments that have been um, presented by his antagonists are so um, unfounded and easy to attack. If we contrast this with um, Zarin Kub, we will see that Islam is the equalitarian and the universal guide to salvation. The Shi'is at advocate the true principles of Islam. The Umayyads violated the equalitarian principle. He put the blame on the, on the Umayyads, not on Islam, and reestablished the dynastic rule based on race, which discriminated among the conquered peoples. The Umayyads hated Iranians because they supported the Shi'is from the very beginning. The early Abbasid period roughly from 132 till 232 was the Persian Golden Age. Islam helped, uh, helped to rise. Iranian scholars such as Sibawai, Abu Obaid, Nobak family, Barmakis, and so forth and so on. 
he motari had rival at the time a friend they knew each other very well in in form of ali shariati ali shariati give gave his university lectures tarikh wa shinakht adyan in which he also paid a lot of attention to the relationship between iran and islam and he constantly in various works was also confronted with this question. So this is another occasion where um, some good studies can be done in terms of how um, Shariati projected Iran in his writings. I haven't seen anybody doing that research. So, Ulam Hussain Sadiqi was another I'm almost uh, finished with this one or two examples, and then we go to the to the main topic. Olamosen Sadiri, the movement religious Iranian, sur le deuxième et troisième siècle, is one of his dissertation. This is probably the best study of religious movements in the, as I said, a little bit later, second century and third century, and not much uh, about the, um, the first, but this, uh, this was translated, he himself did the translation 50 years later uh, as Dombeshay Dini Irani. This is also very useful today. But, um, محمد محمدی تاریخ تاریخ و فرهنگ ایران در دوران انتقال از عصر ساسانی به عصر اسلامی محمدی was Iranian scholar teaching history of Iran and Islam to the Arabs in Beirut an Iranian who is speaking for the Arab public cannot put so much emphasis or exaggerate the Iranian glorious days. So he was very careful. He knew the Persian and the Arabic um, Arabic literature better than anybody else. And he was speaking for an Arab public. Fifty years long, he, he gave a lot of lectures. He wrote a lot of um, uh, articles and books. And and th um, luckily enough, recently in Iran, all his writings were put together and uh, published in a seven-volume uh, text, which um, which is called Tarikh uh, wa Farhang Iran. And uh, this is, as far as I'm concerned, the best um, contribution to the history of Iran and Islam in these two centuries that we have. And everything else that we do and we want to do with the Iranian history should start from this point. Now just to make a break so that I can also drink a little bit, take you a little green, not to to wake up. If you were if if you were in Iran in a mosque I would say Muhammad, Salawat, everybody, uh, everybody will say Salawat and everybody wakes up. So, but I thought I would do that. That is a good trick, by the way, huh? Yeah, this is north of Iran. I just put, uh, put it there for fun. So this is the case. Now let's go to one example I would like to give, and I can talk a little more freely than I 
and write. And the person I want to talk about is Salman Farsi. Salman Farsi, I think there is nobody else can be picked up as a good representative of this dual relationship between Arab and Iranian uh, culture in this period of time. Salman Farsi is today treated by the Shi'is. By the way, it is uh, very close um, to the first picture that we had from Talabustan because he is buried right in the neighborhood. Salman Farsi is today treated. Did I say something wrong? Sorry, thanks. Um, uh, he is almost treated as a imam. Today, when the Iranians or other Shi'is go to Karbala, Najaf, and so and they also have to give, uh, go uh, to pay tribute to Salman Farsi. And um, his mausoleum has been recently bought, I think, with the contribution of Iran very, very well. And the same kind of uh, um, events that the Shi'is do in Iran or in Iraq other, uh, and other places, it is done here. So this um, Salman Farsi is almost a holy man, although unofficially. And um, last year, one of the biggest, uh, biggest conferences that was organized in Iran was called Salman, uh, was, was about Salman Farsi. And uh, they published a book about the literature on Salman Farsi. That means there are hundreds of books in different sizes, there are thousands of articles about Salman Farsi that uh, has been collected. And one of them coming from um, from Jose Elmiegom, which is this one, Salman Farsi Ostandar Fars. Now, Ostandar uh, Madahen. Uh, so, who is this Salman Farsi? This is what we want to know. I mean, if Iran and there is a marriage between Iran and Islam, and he is a representative, who is Salman Farsi? He is a holy man today, and we don't want to touch that because it's just untouchable. We accept that the way it is, but we want to go back and take a look. Salman Farsi is a person with 10 different names. He is Ruzbah, he is Mahbud, he is there are many, he is uh, named under different names. He is he has he has, has had contact, he has seen Jesus Christ 500 years, 550 years earlier. So his age varies between 500, 600 till a minimum of 250. Nobody dares to give his age uh, less than 250. He um, is a Zoroastrian. I mean, I'm talking about how different sources project him. In here is this, in the other sources. He's a Zoroastrian, he's a Mazdakite, he's a Manichaean, he becomes a Christian, he becomes a Jew, and 
until he converts, finds the true religion of Islam. So the, the, here that means he represents the contact between Christian and Zoroastrian, Christianity, Judaism, and all the religious in between. He's a celibate, he's an Anush, uh, Onush, Onush, he's an Onuk, he's married, has five daughters, ten children, and, uh, and so on. Uh, he, the, the, this is the content of these hundred books that are about Salman. This is what we read in them and in the older sources as well. So this is the image of this person. Nonetheless, he's uh, as respected as you can have. This being the case, the the Western Oriental orientalistic, Iranistic, in the 19th century, in the beginning of the, uh, of the 20th century, including Clement Howard and including Joseph Horowitz, they came and wrote about Salman, a fantasy person, because of this kind of material that we have. And they, had, they were right to do that. Some 50 years later, the French scholar Louis Massignon, who came and wrote a book about Salman. This uh, book was translated into Arabic, English, Persian, and so on. This became a standard because here we had a very learned um, a scholar who was going and treating this material in deep and tried to get out uh, the gist of the matter, the kern point of the thing. So what's, uh, what uh, Louis Massignon achieved, I would say, is that to, despite all this fantastic thing that we have around this person, to determine the histor uh, historicity of Salman and Farsi. I think this was his um, contribution in this field. And then from here starts my work. And I was thinking, okay, who, okay, now I accept because I can also argue about all these hundred different stories that we have. I can also argue uh, that he must have been a historical person. But who is this person? Where is he from and what does he do? Salman Farsi, uh, as those who know and you may know, appears first in, uh, on the side of Muhammad, Prophet Muhammad as giving him advice to dig a ditch around Medina when he is attacked. Uh, the, most, the early Muslims are attacked by uh, Meccan armies. By doing that, he saves the nascent Islam. But what is a khandaq? And what is required for somebody engineering that is needed to create a khandaq to bring water in there and def uh, make a defensive wall around the city? That is only possible from a military person. And we have frequent references to Salman being born in the house of Asavara. Asavara is a plural form of 
Persian word Savaran Cavalrymen. This, have been, this has been overlooked by everybody. Salman, in many sources, he says there, I was a member, I was born in a Savaran family. And for those of you who know, during the Sasanian times, this, the military families were very restrict not to accept other members. So when you were a Savaran, that means you were part of um, an elite uh, military group. So he is a Savaran. But then, one very exciting thing that nobody, I think, has seen, he says the people I was a member were worshipping Ya'budun al-Khayl, Khayl al-Ablaq. My people were adoring or worshipping horses. So this was the clue for me to identify this. What does that mean? I am a member of the Asavaran, Asvaran, the worshipper of horses. Then I start digging the sources for horse worshippers. And when you do that, you find a group of people called Aspaziyun. Aspaziyun in Arabic sources in this time means the worshippers of horses. Where do we find these people? Nobody has talked about them. We see that the locations, some of the locations are in Bahrain from at that time, before the arrival of Muslims. The Prophet Muhammad is allegedly written a letter also to the Aspaziyun, the horse worshippers, to convert to Islam, which allegedly they do. The next thing we see is Salman al-Farsi sitting next to the um, Aspaziyun. And the next thing afterwards is that we see that the Aspaziyun have been sitting in the city of Kufa. And the Caliph Omar is supposed to have told Salman, go find a place near, near uh, Al-Madain for these new Muslims. All in all, what I want to say is that about Salman and Farsi is that a military man, a, a military personnel, exactly at the time when the Sasanian family is destroying itself, cutting the head of all the princes. And so it seems to me that Salman is sent from his home country, home city, to go bring assistance from, uh, from um, Arabian lands. What we don't, we shouldn't forget is also this, that during this time, Arabia is nothing more than a province of Persia. This, uh, everybody has disregarded. This is the Persian Empire, and this all, the Lachmids are under, today we call them vassals, but uh, they were an Arab dynasty that uh, were, support, uh, were supported by the Sasanians for many, many centuries. 
in, uh, in Oman, in Hazar uh, um, al and in Yemen. They were all under Sasanian rule. And even in the central de uh, Arabian deserts, in uh, Al uh, Kendi family, the uh, mil uh, Sasanian uh, military men were there and collecting taxes. So when, when we look at Arabia at this time, Arabia is nothing but an Iranian province. If they, if they didn't go to take the desert at that time, because there was nothing there to take. So, and so going back, going back to Salman, Salman is being sent there to bring military support for the Sasanians at this time. When he gets to Arabia, some other things, independent things have been taking place. And this is the appearance of the prophet and the movement in Mecca. So this, I stop here, and uh, I will hope that um, some discussion would come up, and uh, we go from there. That is what I tried to say. Thank you very much. Let's see what. Start Shomaya man. You mentioned uh, the names and works of authors who treated the history of the first century. Uh, these are like modern authors. If you were going to write this century, history of this first century, what sources would you go to? Can you mention, like, where you start? I am. Um, I am a researcher, but um, there is. Uh, we have from the first century. There is nothing available in Arabic, Persian, or whatever. There is absolutely nothing. From the second century, there are some remains, some books. What we have, basically, is from the third century. Okay, some whatever concrete we have, we can date. But these later, third century books, they all report um, back from the second and the first century. Okay, then, and the, 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 all oldest that we have, as we said, is um, is very late already. When Al Tabari, for example, writes his history in the year 300, that means he has been using all the previous sources that are being lost. We don't have them, but we can reconstruct them on the basis of Al Tabari, and that is what has been going on for the last uh, 100 years or so. We reconstruct these texts, but there are so many of them that by when you go dig to every single piece and then put them next to one another, the image starts building up. Is that the... So which side are you on when you go after discussions about how the Iranians were treated after the uh, Arab invasion? Um, no, I, I mean, okay, I can give you the story, and that is it. Um, somebody from outer space came last week, landed in Germany, and then went back home and gave a report up there. So, what did you see? He says, I landed in a land where the people were eating each other. Oh, yeah, yes. And he said, What did he say? Yeah, there was a policeman 
there that had, had caught somebody to pieces and ate them. And then, 10 years earlier, there was a man cut to pieces and cooked and eaten there, and they showed it in the TV. I said, oh, they were all men eaters. So that means if we go with this kind of historiography, the German, yeah, these two events happened in the last couple of ten years. People, somebody killed somebody and, and made a video eating him in Germany. And this is historical. But are the Germans can cannibals? No, they are, they are cannibals. So in Iranian history, the, the problem is that we have 500 years of very tight contact, and there are misgivings here. Somebody does something barbaric. There, something barbaric, and here. That means all the evidence that would be collected here and they're put in two pages, and all we read, burning, destruction, and so on. The Arabs destroyed all the libraries of Iran, such that, for example, Kermani um, uh, says that if they have just made a, a, a wall of China with these books at that time, it could have stopped the uh, Arab invasion. Which books is he talking about? So, to answer your question, I'm, there is a war, there is a conquest. What do you expect? There is destruction, there is killing, and all. but I don't think that the, during the thousand years before that the Iranians constantly had taken over. For thousand years, Arabia was under the control of the Achaemenid, Parthians, Sasanians, forever. And when they went there, they had many wars. They went and destroyed and took over this. What did they do? So I think if we go and want to see that the conquest did a lot of damage, yes, it did. But I do not believe that there were any more. Uh, I, I never see anywhere anything that that one, that one of the reasons, I think, one of the reasons uh, that they became so popular is that there was not such a, uh, so many things. This is my viewpoint. Uh, you, you were? No, go ahead. OK. Thank you, Bill. Let me first, uh, I'd like to express my personal thanks to you for bringing up this subject, a controversial subject that most people actually don't feel comfortable talking about that. So, um, but, but I, I wish that you continued with, uh, with Salman Farsi. Just drop that, and I was learning so much, but you just stopped. Yeah, okay. I mean, if, um, there are things, because as I said, I really had uh, to make a balance. I didn't know sure. uh, uh, for whom I would. Okay, I, I, um, as Dr. Milani mentioned, I, I wrote a dissertation uh, many years ago. And that was Sasanian soldiers in early Islamic society. And everybody who had that those days, Sasanian soldiers in early Islamic society. What, what does that mean? Sasanians are, are gone. 
I, my thesis is that, in this book, that the Abbasid revolution is a Sasanian revolution. Don't get upset for those uses. How could that be? Read the book, and then we discuss it. But this was a dissertation I put down. I think I showed it. The success of the book uh, proved that, and it has been using as a textbook in many universities since. Okay, So that means, as far as I am concerned, in the first century of Iran and Islam, there is no change. If you want to understand the Sasanian, the last century of Sasanian period, we can read the first century of Islam. This is the same thing. What are the changes? Which changes did Iran experience in this century? I don't see anything. I didn't get a chance to ask my question. Yes, sir. So the question that I have is like in this hundred years that that, that for the two hundred years that you, we uh, know that there is no 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 documents. My question is, you have studied that. So what do you think about the cause of the reason that there is no documents? Uh, what, so okay, the there is a, again. We shouldn't say that we have document forever and ever. I, I, I didn't come across. The date of this documentation is late. That means yeah. those dates, depending on the kind of paper, papyrus, uh, whatever the writing uh, means that they were using, these were destructive. When the paper appeared at the beginning of the 9th century, all these things were started being converted on paper, and this is what we have. So these are all. The stories that we, we read and work with is actually, they are very authentic and very old. And today we know that, for example, for, for many years they were saying that Quran is written 200 years later. No, this is not the case. Now we, are, uh, we have examples that 20 years, 30 years after the uh, uh, passing away of Muhammad, Quran was written down. So 50 years ago we didn't know that, but now we have documentation. And that's kind of thing. At what, at what stage did the Iranian society adopt the Arabic script? Because before the Islamic influence, what was the script in which they wrote? Farsi. The Pahlavi, as it is called. The Pahlavi is not the language. Pahlavi is the writing. So the name of the writing is Pahlavi. And the origin of this comes from Semitic, from Aramaic writing. And, and the, the same source had also given rise to the Arabic. And for people who are studying this field, they would see a lot of parallels between the Pahlavi and the Arabic because the origin or the mother source is the same. So um, we were writing Pahlavi, which is based on the Aramaic, and Arabic is also based on Aramaic writing. This is in fact uh, answers your question. So when did the language settle down? The, which one? Spoken Farsi in Arabic script. For literature to really appear and flourish. The, the Persian um, 
Okay, we are also experiencing at this time, I think independent from Arabic, there is a, uh, all this discussion about the Persian, Dari, and the Middle Persian. What is the difference? They are parallel going on at this particular time. I think one of the contributions of the Arabic comp uh, Arab conquest of Iran was that they, contrary to all this uh, Zarin Kut, Moin, and all the others, they, not only they didn't destroy the Persian, but they encouraged the Persian language because all this dialect they were confronted with, all this communication that they needed to do, they needed a unified language, and that became then the dialect of the, uh, the common dialect of the people, which was Persian Dari. And this is, gave rise to the Persian. But the, uh, the Middle Persian was still parallel going, but the uh, literature start, uh, started in uh, New Persian Dari. But isn't it true that Dari is only a spoken language? It was originally, probably. I'm not very, very detailed in that. This is very much interesting to me. I've been looking uh, into this aspect, I have a lot of um, examples. For example, um, just give you an, uh, an idea. We, we the, the Persian history books, like let's say the biggest one for Safa, they give you about for the from the time of arrival of Muslims to the time of Rudaki, they give you about 80 lines of poetry, right? And then, then it starts the, so, father of Persian language and poetry is Rudaki, but we see that all the previous ages, Persians have been versifying. There is little, little evidence, but this evidence is enough to see that we have at least 20, I, I have it, I don't know who I, I have 22 Persian poets before Rudaki. And Safa had 80 lines, I have almost 100 lines of Persian, this is, I mean, to talk about 100 lines of poetry for two and a half centuries is not much, but nonetheless, it's a good evidence that the language was there and the poetry was done in that language. This is what I said. The gentleman first. So, um, I'm, I'm thinking through the questions that are being asked, the presentation that you made, and I'm trying to think about what it is that I'm going to walk away with at the end of this talk. And, and let, me, let me finish. So, so it appears to me that you have proposed some thesis that's going to demythify or, or debunk some common understanding and perceptions. And, and you're, not, you're not articulating that in a very clear way, but in between the lines I can see that you are actually proposing a different um, narrative than what most of us have heard um, as not researchers, but as just general public. And I, I really would like and appreciate it if you could sort of summarize your key points that you believe the common understanding is incorrect and you have a different perspective on it. This is, uh, I, I would thank you for this comment because it clarifies the point a little bit. Okay, what am I going to, uh, what am I giving 
for you to take with. That means I am a historian. I started like any uh, any uh, any students. Where do I start? I read. Out, uh, I start reading the books of this uh, great personalities that we have. Then I started doing my research, and I noticed that what I see in front of me is nothing like what these gentlemen are saying, whether the Islamist al-Mutahari or the nationalist Zarin Kup or Pur Dawood or others. So this is built. Documentation is always there, but this is an amalgamation of everything and every uh, concentration in a point. So this is not the way we have to write history. This is not the history of Iran in this period. That is why I've called the Iran today. My message is the first two centuries of Iran. It is not two centuries of silence. It is two centuries of ignorance. The, the, uh, the history of Iran in these two centuries is still in need to be written. A chapter of it I have contributed in the previous work. I just mentioned it. This is my message. If we look like Awai uh, Beizai did Hazar Aqsan recently, for those of you who haven't, I'm, I'm busy also in that son. This is the translation number. As I have son, everybody says it doesn't exist or uh, it doesn't come from. But when somebody comes and focuses on that particular topic, the whole universe opens up, and then you will see what it is behind. And for example, we have it right in front of us. And that is what I do in my field, too. But what, what are some of the key myths that exist that you're trying to debunk? Well, I, I would become too extremist if I really uh, uh, go to my thought. No, just, just a few of them. Just give an example of a few of them. Well, I do not really... Oh, my God, what am I saying? Uh, I do not even believe that such a conquest ever took place. So this is too radical. I don't want to give it a no, 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 go ahead and see it. So that you don't believe the Muslim yeah. conquest, the Arab I, conquest ever actually took place. That's not uh, This one. is, for example, one possibility. Okay. But to go through all 500 years of historical writing, that is not that easy. So I just want to be off the line there. This is where I go from. I will see, for example, that um, if there is a conquest, there must be changes. Yeah, there is a, what happened in Iran? What, uh, what are the changes? What are the impacts? Well, there is, it doesn't exist. That means the Arabs came and went, they made all these deals with locals, they all kept their power, they, they all kept their system, okay. 80 years later, after the conquest, they start thinking that these Iranians are not are cheating us. Let us <coughs> translate the, the, uh, the language of the uh, register tax collection so that we can get more from them. Only, uh, only eight, uh, in the year 85 or so. And then this, happened, this also never took place. So for me, in the, uh, I want anybody who talks about this period to show me what happened. There is nothing. This is 
this is a point. Yes. Don't you believe that they burn all the books, they destroy the culture, this is uh, uh, the, taking over the country? The, the Muslim took over Iran. Not a single book was burned. If there was a book, show me a title, and so this book was burned here. I don't say that the book burning didn't happen. There were occasions, and we have all ages, that some somebody came, and at some point in some city said, these books must be burned, and they were Islamic books. I do not, give me one, give me one, just one Iranian title, and this Arab conquered, burned this book. Here's my second question. At that time, there was a migration of Zoroastrian to India, right? So didn't, didn't they take any books or any, did they write any, any history about what was the, happening? The, the, the burning of books is a, a modern construct. The books burning or so, that was not a key topic of the Arabs invade, invade and burn the book. Even, even if books were burned, as what the Iranians themselves, that the newcomers, they do not these books anymore. They want to show their loyalty to the new Muslim, and they burn their books. I mean, this is a hypothesis. But if there is burn, uh, book burning, somebody should tell us, uh, sh uh, show us one example. There, sir. Yes. But, well, I mean, there might be some book burning, but the thing is, based on what you said, and also based on what the Arabs mentioned in this book, actually, the Arabs, they kept the Persian books because they wanted to learn how to govern this vast empire. Exactly. They wanted to learn how things work. Exactly. And also, um, uh, earlier then you were saying that, um, I I'm sorry. No. <laughs> <laughs> It'll come back to me in a minute. Oh yeah, uh, I'm so glad. I, I want to try and narrow this question from an earlier question, your opinion, okay? Do you believe that this period, 200 years, represents a regression of Persian culture and literature and so on? No way. No way. No okay, way. so you said it represents a period of ignorance, right? Our ignorance today. Our ignorance today. So during that period, you have to assume there was some sort of imposed ignorance. Yes, because there was a pre-existing culture. We know this. I mean, Jesus did that. And you say it's still there and was never destroyed. No, I think you're in contradiction with a lot of... Mid everything has been said so far. Um, <laughs> I got my second question, really quick. I mean, the reason that things didn't really change when uh, Arab took over is because um, there was, well, for lack of a better word, there was a superior culture that sort of... Uh, for instance, look at Mongolians. They went all over to Europe. They, they, as far as the, uh, literature, uh, architecture, they didn't leave anything behind, but they were just superior fighters. Same with the Arabs. I mean, uh, uh, I don't want to say Persian Arabs, but you know what I'm talking about. I mean, they were, they were superior fighters, they were superior uh, uh, army, but not necessarily culturally, uh, I don't think they could match with the Persian Empire, and that's why they really couldn't influence the culture, influence the language. If it was uh, uh, the, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, okay. The, uh, I mean, the, we know that, for example, 
the Abbasid come and bring their center back to Baghdad, back to Madain, and they try to recuperate and reactivate everything that was Persian so that the Arabs themselves say that the Abbasid is a Persian empire. And this you have to take it for word for word because this is what really it is. Anything that the, during the previous hundred years, the first century, has been ignored, that has been fallen out of use, was reactivated and rejuvenated. In the, in the second century, we have Iran as it has ever been. And I agree with uh, um, Brown earlier that he said this is the glorious age of Persia. The, the military conquest was there, the defeat was there, the destruction was there, but let's say, gradu I congratulate ourselves, Iranians, at, to get the best out of it. And we really did. This is, this is the point. Okay. Thank you so much um, for answering all the questions and um, the presentation. Um, I'm not a historian, and I, um, um, information and knowledge is very limited. But um, I just want to know if we, that, um, according to what you were saying earlier, um, for instance, if uh, Salman al-Farsi uh, was sent as a soldier, and uh, we keep this uh, from basically the time of Sasanian to the time of Abbasi, this, um, this period of time, as ignored or silent. So can we assume that like so-and-so soldier was sent to bring Arabs back uh, to help us, and the Sasanian just basically faded away by themselves, and nothing happened for 200 years, and then the um, Apasi uh, dynasty kind of like re like there was a re-revolution? Uh, no, okay. So what happens? I mean, okay, but sometimes when we generalize, you shouldn't make it that I mean, concrete. Let me, let me no, say. I'm just asking. No, no. I, I, I don't like no, it. This is not the point I want to make. Yeah, there are changes, of course. There is there is a conquest that the Sasanis have destroyed themselves. Mm -hmm. Okay, there, there was, as the Arabs came, there was nothing to take. It was already fallen. Yeah, that was my this is, I don't know where is, a, where is a, uh, who has problems with that. They say there was no resistance. There was no resistance. There was no conquest. Uh, and uh, and uh, this is throughout, uh, throughout the case. And uh, there was destruction. There was changes. There is new circumstances. What would happen to the Sasanis over 200 years if nothing else had happened? Of course, the society changes and the ideas <coughs> and the culture changes. And now it's a, a foreign factor in it, so the changes would be a little more radical. But I, I don't say the 200 years after we come here, we see 100% what we had before. No. But these are modest, regular changes that we could gradually, uh, happen. gradually have happened. Excuse me, gentlemen. Yes, please tell us. When you say that. Your belief is that the conquest of Iran by the Arabs did not take place. No, okay, that is a little bit too radical. I don't take it. I mean, this is the orientation because there's so little. So if they conquered, where, what did they conquer? What did they do? This is my problem. So my, my question is this. Do you mean the fact that nine, over 90% of the population of Iran 
lived in villages that were remote and inaccessible because they were agrarian in contrast to Arabia, which of course they were not uh, agrarian, an agrarian society. And therefore, over 90% of the population did not really uh, experience the invasion of the Arabs. Is that yeah, what you mean? This is, this is, this is part of it. Yeah. Well, in that case, I don't think this big disagreement between you and the audience here. There is no argument. This agrarian substratum that was there had their own structure. There were the Tehran, there were the Marzban, who, who entered into relationship with the Arabs, and they had to do collection of taxes and pay the regular fees on the Arabs, and this system uh, stayed intact for, for, for a long period of time. Thank you. Uh, you said some statements about uh, the, the languages, Persian and Arabic. Uh, I would respectfully say that they were very inaccurate. So let's uh, hear that. I'm not an expert in first, uh, first, uh, Persian, uh, Middle Persian, or all Persian languages uh, are Indo-European, and Arabic is has Semitic uh, roots. Exactly. So they are exactly. They don't have any uh, base, common base. Who said uh, that? All the languages. Linguists say. Well, I never say that. Uh, maybe you're not a linguist. I don't know. No, no, I don't. Say, I, 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 don't know who said no, that. Uh, and then the other thing is that the language. You said that the Arab helped the Iranian uh, or the Farsi language promote them. It's exactly opposite. And I believe, uh, based on based on the, the the documents that I don't know them by heart, uh, in fact, Arabs uh, employed the Persian scholars because they needed the correspondence. Iranian had already established an empire, so they had the, the system, the, 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 the communication system. The Arabs didn't. And so they, they needed them to do the, 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 basically the communication. You, you, you said something exactly opposite. No, no, I, I said exactly what you said. Uh, but apparently, the, uh, I was talking about the writing. The writing, the writing, uh, basically, the Pahlavi is a write, a written system, as you said, mentioned that, but that was uh, uh, invented only for uh, administration correspondence. That's that's how it is invented, and it has nothing to do with uh, with uh, the Arabic. Uh, and, and in fact, Arabic script is a uh, is a subset of Pahlavi. Not the other way, because yes. Arabs. Yeah, because Arabs used to do it just, just a, a very uh, basically. Uh, they used the speaking system, and you said, that, for example, there is no poems in Farsi. That's actually correct because poems uh, is, a, is an Arab, poem is an Arabic art. It didn't exist in uh, the 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 Pahlavi or the the Middle Persian because Middle Persian language that I can actually write and, and speak and write Pahlavi is, is not actually made for it. No, anyway, uh, let's uh, make things, thanks for bringing them up. I never ever say that Persian and uh, Semitic languages are the same family. I never said that, I never claim it. I just and, uh, no, no, this is only. I was. That was just the script. The script. The script. I would also. 
Aramaic is not Aramaic, that was the, the source. And I am really also the believer that the Arabic script itself uh, should is dependent on the Iranians who produced that and uh, gave it as a present to the Arabic because it was based on the same sources that they have made their Pahlavi writing and not their language. Okay, this is one thing. Uh, here, please. Uh, you mentioned a scholar that has only 80 verses of Persian poems. This is Safa. 100. Can you elaborate on that whole? And uh, this is, we are running out of time, so we have to uh, stop. And then we have been collecting and writing the history of Persian literature. Persian literature, and that means we go to these old sources that we have to see who is writing in Persian, who is writing, uh, who is composing poems, and so on. So you, you all know from the school books from those days, Budaki is the father of Persian literature, language. Budaki is probably, uh, I mean, we can put the year 300 for, for Budaki. So then the question would be, uh, is that now from the year 300, there are 250 years past since the Arabs came. So didn't we have any, any poem, poets? Didn't we have any other people who said? In the 19th century, when Edward Brown wrote the literary history of Persia, he didn't have any evidence or only eight lines of poetry for these 250 years. By the time Safa, 50 years later, wrote his Persian literature book, we have found other examples in different sources that were, that were newly published or newly appeared, and this added to the number of almost 80 lines of poetry um, all over Iran and in different periods of this early time. And now, because the research has been going on, little line here, half a verse there, have been uh, accumulating on behalf, uh, I claim I have about 100 lines. Does that answer your question? So for the 250 years of Persian poetry, there are 100 lines. Is that on the web anywhere? Pardon? Is that on the web? The, the published book by Safa, they are there in his first volume of his uh, Persian history of Iran. What and what the other line, sorry? What about the I, I, I wrote an article some times ago. I, I introduced three, three, four lines there that are new. And I've mentioned here and there a few lines. And there are others who have discovered one line, half a line here, and a new combination that gives us yes, in a sort of 80, gives us this 100, it, I don't know of. Yeah. Sorry? Sorry? Safa, There is one, uh, OK, here, and then you. Aside from uh, this is a quick uh, question on conversion, religious conversion, during the Omanyet and Abbasid. Uh, roughly what percentage of uh, uh, Sassanid territory, I'm not going to call it Iran because that's always relative to what we consider Iran was and, uh, then became. 
uh, in their territory, what percentage of the population were either willingly or forcefully converted actually to Islam? And then later to ab in Abbasid, what percentage were converted again, either forcefully or willingly? So this information we do not have, okay? Because there is not enough source material. The question of conversion in Iran, conversion to uh, Iran and to Islam, the only source that we have comes from the uh, studies, substantial studies that we have is uh, um, by Mouillet, Mouillet uh, in, uh, uh, he, he used materials from the fourth uh, century and on the basis of thousands of names. You know in Persian nomenclature they say Muhammad ibn, Hassan ibn, Ali ibn, Tarizadeh, Manuchir ibn, Marzban. Hussein ibn, Muhammad ibn, blah, 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 blah. And then, so, so these names, each one represents a generation. And when you see that, for example, the first generation of these family names that we have, it is a Dehkan, it is a Marzban, it is a Hormuzan, it is a Firuzan, and then Abdullah, Muhammad, and so forth. We, we, uh, when we put all these names, all the sources that we have, we see that, the, for example, I have, for the first century of Iran, I would like to publish at some point a prosopographical uh, study of the first century of Iran. That means how many Iranian names we have in the sources. There are thousands of them. So as long as we have Fuzan, Ardeshi, Borshule, Babaxan, they are all Zoroastrian. And this portion, as time goes by, little by little, start changing. So we assume that when it is Abdullah ibn Ardeshir, Ardeshir is Zoroastrian or some other religion, this Abdullah is a Muslim. And this, uh, at least I want to make sure to see, to get some percent of conversion in the first century. There are a lot of names, and maybe it's also not representative because the names that we, are, we have in the Arabic literature are the Muslims already, and the non-Muslims are not as representative. But nonetheless, this is the best way. I think we can go and get uh, some solid information from that for this conversion class. But it is very slow, very, very slow, and it starts going from the fourth and fifth century onwards, and then we see radical rise. So it started very slowly, and that goes back to the presumption that how much of an impact, as far as the change goes, and you mentioned this, this invasion and conquest then had in the country, because it spoke of the language and then religion. And if the population was not under strict guidance of a conversion to Islam, and they were either allowed to either pay the tariyah, because they could collect money, and the second assumption that the Umayyad specifically uh, did not care about the Iranian populations because they considered themselves as Arabs to be superior, and they don't want to fully convert a population that they consider to be inferior to theirs to convert to their religion that they treasure, then that would somewhat satisfy your 
um, comments that the change was extremely gradual and wasn't as forceful as we think. There is a lot of studies in this part, uh, particular aspect, whether the, to what extent the Muslims were really interested in converting the subjugated people. And this is, we have many, many studies, because the Muslims were there primarily to collect money. And every convert would be reducing that money. This was the logic. So for them, I, there is no push. There is one for all the Umayyad Khalifa, one who says that, hey, you guys, you have to also, you have a job to do. You have to convert the people here. One, the other one said, no, we are not interested. So they would like, they didn't push, they couldn't control, but they did not went to force the people to convert. You see, this was not in their interest. So, how about one more question? <laughs> the gentleman there in the back. Yes, you reminded us that if we started speaking for a thousand years prior of through Sasania, uh, there were rulers from our area and in the Iranian region of the time uh, ruling over the southern part of uh, what is the Arabian region. And in a sense, the contrast, then you kind of, I think, uh, readily said, well, as a matter of conquest, there is destruction, there is this and that given. But I don't think it's that trivial when we talk about contrasting uh, how the rulers, that's what I want you to give a comment based on your research or literature, because if I remember uh, Dr. Daryai's one of the earlier talks this year, whether you're at Berkeley, I don't want misinformation, I can find that out later to corroborate. He was of opinion that indeed, the very prevailing racism of Iranian throughout the years, even up to today, uh, it was a direct result of how the rulers at the time, as that general was saying, uh, indeed, it was a reaction to the way they were racist towards Iranian culture, Iranian people at the time. So my question to you is, how do you see the contrast? Is there anything in the literature for the thousands of years that uh, all the, the dynasties ruled the southern part of the, what was today the region? How does the social hegemony and uh, interacting with people in that context compare to what you call by way of conquest of Arabs uh, of the Iranian region. I tried to catch the point uh, uh, of your question. I My question, question is, the, how did Arab races against yeah. Iran no, there is a, there is a category. Yeah, you see, the, I think we, one of the points I want to make is that the Arabs coming to Iran it was nothing unique. They were not so strange, so against Iranians as we see them today. They have always been part of Iran, province of Iran, the Nimruz of Iran, the Hamavaran of Iran. They are in our, our literature and they are in our history. There is a chapter of everything. So, the Arabs constantly, during the, this previous thousand years, we find them in, in uh, Khorasan, in Central Asia, because the, the Sassanis or their predecessors have carried them over there to fight. So there was no such a contrast. They, 
Iran or Sasanian Empire is an empire that is governed multiple nationals living under their control, and everybody was in this imperium sort of welcome, if you want, the Arabs as much. They had a lot of difficulty to stop the raiding from the Bedouins to the uh, settlements and so on, but they did not have any such difficulties with the Arabs. And when the Arabs came, it was not so, so uh, dramatically unique that uh, we are presenting them. I think it's. Uh, are, you, are you suggesting then that uh, really what happened was a cultural osmosis? Was a cultural osmosis that Arabs and Iranians were kind of the same, and then the salinity changed, and basically the cultural was the assimilation between the two versus the conquest? So the, the explanation why the Arabs start marching out. That is um, explained in many different ways. If, uh, okay, that means it was the rise of the Bedouin uh, productivity of the health of the Bedouin nature that gave rise to these two great movements of hum in human history, the Bedouins in Arabia and the Bedouins in Mongolia that uh, invaded the Asia later, 500 years later. So these are other geographical and um, natural phenomena that have contributed to it. Why did the Arabs at this time become so powerful and start marching and taking over the world? I, I think we stop here because uh, uh, thank you so much.